We are working our way through the book of Hebrews in the series that we're calling Greater Than. Looking at the greatness of Christ throughout Scripture, but especially in the book of Hebrews, which ties so well into all of Scripture, especially a lot of the Old Testament. And today we're looking at the idea of Christ's sacrifice once for all. And there's a lot involved in that. So let me just start with the idea of keeping something clean. I don't know about you, but, and maybe my wife knows this, she's probably figured it out by now, I hate cleaning the house. Um, I don't mind making it messy, but I hate cleaning it. It's a lot of work, right? You, you do a project or you do something with the kids or, or they get their toys out and it's just everywhere. And We've got four kids, so it really gets everywhere. I mean, there's just mounds of toys sometimes. Uh, You think of the dishes. I mean, wouldn't you like to just do the dishes once and be done? Wouldn't that be great? Laundry, same thing. I think for my wife, that would be it. If if laundry could be done once for all, that would be great. But you know, when you go to clean a house, not only do you need to be diligent, but you need to be effective. You need to know what you're doing. There are some spills. There are some things you just grab a quick paper towel. No big deal. There are some things, if all you're doing is grabbing a paper towel, you're not really doing anything, are you? It's just not nearly enough. I heard a story once, I'm pretty sure it's not true, but it's still funny, so I'll share it with you. I heard a story once, a, a speaker shared about an old pastor, and he went over to uh, the house of an elderly couple for lunch, and the couple was serving him lunch, and he was helping to get the dishes out and put the dishes on the table, and, and he's looking at these dishes, and he's thinking, these are not clean at all. You can see little bits and smudges and smears, and it just looks gross. And, and he, he's sort of looking at them, and the wife kind of catches his eye and says, oh, no, no, it's fine. It, it's fine. They're clean. I, I, I wash them with soap and water every single time. It's no problem. They're clean. He says, okay, no problem. So they, they have their lunch, and the whole time he's looking at his plate going, ugh. This is not clean. This is disgusting. And he's thinking maybe, you know, maybe they just don't do a great job of washing them. So he thinks after lunch, I'm going to help out. I'll go into the kitchen. I'll offer to help wash the dishes. And so he goes in. He carries the dishes in. He begins to put them in the sink and run the water. And she says, no, 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 don't worry about it. I'll I'll wash them. I, I wash them with soap and water. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of them. Here, watch. And she piles up the dishes. And she opens the back door and she sets them out on the back step. And she says, here's soap, here water. And these two nasty looking German shepherds come running over and just lick the dishes clean. She says, see, I clean them with soap and water. Groan. (laughs) But it does prove the point, doesn't it? How you clean is pretty important. Simply saying that you clean is not enough. Today, of course, we're talking about a different kind of cleaning. We're not actually talking about cleaning up our homes. We're talking about cleaning up our lives. I think we each go through times where where we think, if I just put in enough effort, I can fix something that's broken in me. I can overcome some bad habit. I can get rid of some lingering guilt or doubt and I'll fix it and it'll be done. And we, maybe we even do great and we take a class or we go through a sermon series or we go through some time on our own or we read that new famous book that's out there that'll help everybody and just read this and this will solve it. And we think, yes. And then a week goes by and we're kind of right back where we started from. 
And so today I want to talk about the once-for-all nature of Christ's ministry. We're going to go through the entire chapter of chapter 9 of Hebrews, and we're going to do it in a very short period of time, hopefully. Uh, So we'll see how we do. So we're going to have to cruise here if we're going to get done on time. In Hebrews, the author is tying so much about Jesus Christ into the Old Testament, and it's one of the things I love about this book, but it's also one of the things that makes it difficult. Because not only do you have to read the book, but you have to go back and look at what is it referring to. So in this chapter in particular, it's going to talk about the Old Testament tabernacle. So let me read this first passage to set the stage. Because not only does this passage set the stage for what the author is going to say about Christ, but what the author is saying is the tabernacle sets the stage for us to understand the fact that Christ came and died once for all. So let's read. I'll read. You can follow along with me. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly, the priests, excuse me, entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings External regulations applying until the time of the new order. Now this is going to set the stage for the rest of this passage, and indeed much of the rest of Hebrews. So I want us to look at the tabernacle, in case you're not familiar with it, so that we're all thinking about this in the same way. The tabernacle was given, the plans for the tabernacle rather, were given to the Israelites in the Old Testament during the time of the Exodus. If you know a little bit of Bible history, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. You have the plagues, and God brought them miraculously out of Egypt, and he leads them to Mount Sinai, where he gives them his covenant, his commandments, and the relationship that they're going to have with him. And as a part of that covenant, this contract between him and them, he describes to them a plan to build this right here, a tabernacle, a sort of mobile temple, if you will. And the most important thing about the tabernacle is this right here. In the very innermost room of the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. It contained in it the Ten Commandments themselves, along with some other things. And above that Ark, God chose to manifest His presence among His people. They called it the Shekinah glory. And so there in this tent... In amongst the campground, if you will, of his people, God was living there with his people. And when he moved and his glory left the tabernacle, they would pack up this whole thing, 
carry it along with them. They would pack up all their tents and move to another place. And when God's glory would descend, they would set up the tabernacle and they would encamp around the tabernacle. And the idea was very clear. God is with them. That's what set the Israelites apart from every other nation. God, their God, the one true God, was with them, present with them through everything they went through. But it taught them a lot about what it meant to be in the presence of God. You see, here around the tabernacle was a a fence, a series of curtains that were raised up so you couldn't see in, and you couldn't get into the tabernacle any other way except through the main gate. God told them, there's one way to come into my presence. And when you came into this area, the Israelites could come and did come into this area, and they would offer sacrifices Constantly, throughout the year, there were sacrifices to cover their sins between them and God. There were sacrifices to cover their sins between them and other people. There were sacrifices to express their fellowship with God. There were sacrifices to express their their thanksgiving to God. There were all sorts of sacrifices to be a demonstration and a, a participation in this relationship between them and God. But here's the interesting thing. You see, God chose to be here in the Holy of Holies, the innermost room. But if you're an Israelite, you only get to come to here. No Israelite was allowed to just walk into the tabernacle. A common person just couldn't walk in and say, hey, I'm part of the people of God. I'll just go right into his presence. No, only the priests could go into the tabernacle itself and only into this outermost room. And there, throughout the day, They would make sure that the bread was on the table. And we talked about that, I think it was last week. The bread that was this symbol, this ongoing symbol of the covenant and the meal they had eaten in God's presence. We talked about the relationship between that and the Lord's Supper. It was also a symbol of their ongoing communion and relationship with God. They also went in throughout the day to make sure that the lamps were kept burning. Because, well, for one, if it would get really dark in the tabernacle if they didn't but also because it was a symbol of God's presence among them, his eternal light that was with them at all times. But again, the Israelites couldn't go into there. Because see, the holy God had chosen to dwell among them, but they had a problem. They were sinful people. They had this guilt in their life, this criminal activity, if you will, between them and God. They were living rebels, and they couldn't just burst into the presence of God. There had to be safeguards in place. Because for a sinner to just waltz into the presence of a holy God means instant death. And so God says, I will, I will dwell among you, but you need to understand this is a tough relationship for sinners to be in the presence of a holy God. And then the priests even, though they could go into this outer room, they could not go into the innermost room, the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, only through going through very specific steps and specific sacrifices, could he go into that room and only after it had been filled with smoke to offer the special sacrifice to atone for all the sins of the people. And it was interesting, in that sacrifice, Scripture specifically says it was to pay for their sins, to redeem them, but it was also to cleanse the place where God dwelt. The tabernacle teaches us some interesting things about our relationship with God. You see, we have some big problems in our relationship with God. Yes, God is with us, but we are always separated from Him. And if God had not given them a way to have this relationship with Him, it would not be possible. 
And if I could, just as an aside, when people say there's many different ways to God, and it doesn't matter how you come to God, as long as you're just sincere and you just believe, it really doesn't matter what you believe. There's a lot of places I could point to in Scripture to say that that's not true, but this is one of them. If it didn't matter how they came to God, then this is silliness. But God was very specific. How many posts, what the base was made out of, what the rings were made out of, the dimensions of the tabernacle, the way to make the lampstand. He was very specific because he knew the people needed to understand his holiness and their sinfulness. And so they learned, yes, God is with us, but we are always separate from him. And for us to be in his presence, our sin must be paid for. Our rebellion must be paid for. But also they had this concept that sin is like an infection. I'm not talking about a physical infection and germs and bacteria, but a spiritual infection, which means that the sinner infects what they touch. And so on the Day of Atonement, Scripture says it cleansed the tabernacle. The shedding of the blood would pay for the sins and cleanse the infection of the sin. Now we look at that and we say, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's just ancient mumbo-jumbo. That has nothing to do with us today. Does it? How often do we look at the news and think, what's wrong with the world? Why are all these bad things happening? Because this sin is, this world is broken. This world is infected and sinful people do sinful things and their sinful things have impacts and lasting influences on other people. And we see that all the way back in this archaic means that God gave his people to teach them about their real problem of sin. And so the priests would serve and they would have to do it over and over. But no matter how many years went by, no matter how true they were to the system that God set up, this separation right here between the people and God's most holy presence still remained. This system, no matter how well kept, could only maintain the separation between them and God. It could never overcome it. And so it pointed, as verse 10 says, they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order, or some translations have the time of correction or reformation. And what it's saying is a time was going to come where the problem that can be described but not fixed by the tabernacle would be solved by God himself. And so the stage is set. Now let's look at the one issue of being uh, the need to be made clean. Let's look at verses 11 through 14. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? Look at what Christ has done. 
the problem that was set up and could be described but not overcome by the tabernacle is overcome by the Son of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It says when He came, He didn't go into some man-made temple. He wasn't going through some motion of worship. He was actually accomplishing something. He came to this world and our messy relationship with God. He was born in that manger. He walked among us. He saw what we saw. He went through what we go through. And when He died... And His blood was the blood of the sacrifice. He didn't put it on some man-made altar. He took that sacrifice to the very presence of God. Not some representation in the Holy of Holies, but the actual throne room of God. And there He took Himself. And He said, It is finished. Paid for. Done. Christ didn't use some blood of an animal. An animal that could say, or actually didn't have the option to say, no, thank you. An animal that couldn't say, hey, I don't really feel like being a a sacrifice today. The animal had no choice, but Christ did. He could have said no at any time. In fact, the devil came to him and basically said, hey, you can get out of this. And he said, no. This is what God wants. And Christ willingly offered himself as a sacrifice. In verse 13, it talks about this, these goats and these bulls and specifically mentions the ashes of a heifer that were sprinkled. And i got to be honest, I had to look that one up. I had no clue what that was referring to. I kind of know the Day of Atonement and that's not a part of it. So I thought, what in the world is going on? And if you're interested, you can read about it in Numbers chapter 19. There is this statement of what's known as the red heifer. Now, what this was, was a cow, specific, very specific cow, that was sacrificed and completely burned. And the ashes were collected and then mixed with water. And this became what was known as the water of cleansing. And the idea was, whenever somebody touched a dead body, on purpose or on accident, and let's face it, this was part of their normal day-to-day life. It's probably not so much yours today, but in their life, death was all around them. And they had to understand the infectious nature of of sin. And so when they touched a dead body, they couldn't go to the tabernacle because they were infected by sin. And God said, here's what I'll do. You wash with the water of cleansing, and then and only then can you go into the tabernacle so that you don't defile the tabernacle. Now you might be saying, okay, that's weird. Do we have to do that today? I mean, do we have a special little area of water somewhere that we keep and we put special things in it? No. But the point of it was this. One, you needed to be cleansed from sin and the effects of sin. Two, something had to die in order for that to take place. Do you see that there? Something had to die. That animal had to be killed. Its blood had to be shed in order for that water to take place so that you could be cleansed. And here God is showing them the need to be cleansed from sin. But it says here, verse 14, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Look, some of you are probably here today and you've worked so hard to clean up your life. Or maybe you have things in your history or maybe things in your present. And you think, nobody can love me because of this. God can't possibly love me. I I just can't. I just feel dirty and I, I can't get this out of me. 
Jesus Christ came. And through what He did on that cross in your place, by the shedding of His blood and the giving of His life, the Bible is saying He is the perfect sacrifice once for all. And whoever believes in Him, the effects of that sin, the infection of that sin, is washed away. There is real cleansing involved and available through Jesus Christ. But that's just one aspect of our sin that needs to be dealt with. Because not only do we need to be cleansed, but we need to be set free. Look at verses 15 through 22. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to provide, or I'm sorry, to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with the water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll in all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There's a lot going on in this passage. And again, we're entering in a culture that is different than our own. And we're entering into a culture that not only is different than our own, but is referring to an even uh, even more different culture. And so we have to see this through their mindset. And at this point, the NIV has made a mistake. The New International Version, this translation that we use, which I think is a phenomenal translation, they blew it on this one. Let me tell you why. In verses 16 and 17, it talks about in the case of a will. The word there for will is the exact same word as covenant. The NIV, based on the context here, has chosen to translate it differently. There's reasons for that. It's okay. But in this case, I think they made a poor decision. The reason they made the the decision is that we understand that a will is put into effect. When somebody dies, you, you get out the will, you read the will, and you divide up the property and those sorts of things. You do what the deceased wanted you to do. That's what their will is there for. And you don't do that until they die. Makes sense. And it kind of goes along with the passage. The problem is, this wasn't written to today. This was written to them a long time ago. And that wasn't how they saw wills. Wills weren't just put into effect when somebody died. In fact, a will could actually be put into effect while the person was still alive. And we have a very famous example of that in Scripture called the prodigal son. That's exactly what was going on. The prodigal son wanted the will to be put into effect before his father died, and that was allowed. It was disrespectful, but it was allowed. So, What is going on in this passage? First of all, I'm going to take the word will and change it back to covenant because I think that's what's going on here. So let's look at that again. Because in verse 15 it says, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. So he's linking this, just like we've been looking at, back into the old covenant that was given to Moses. Now think of how this happened. When a covenant was started, there were two important if I can say, applications of death. I know that sounds weird, but stick with me, okay? Nobody's going to be hurt this morning. Stick with me. The first is at the beginning of the covenant. At the beginning of the covenant, 
the two people were entering into a relationship, and the Mosaic Covenant was specifically God and the people of Israel. They were entering into a relationship. The stipulations were written down. You know them as the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament law, the sacrificial system of the tabernacle. And all of this was written down, and God said, do you agree? And the people said yes. So what did they do to enter that covenant? They killed something. Something had to be put to death. For two reasons. One, it was a symbol that who I was before this commitment is dead and gone. I'm not going to die. Something's dying in my place. Because let's face it, if you had to die to start a covenant, nobody would ever make a covenant, right? I'm going to sell you my house. You want to make a covenant with me? Great. We're here. We'll write it all out. Okay, you die, I die. I mean, that just wouldn't happen. So they would use an animal to symbolize their death. But there's another aspect of it that's, I think, even more important. And it was this aspect that there at the beginning, it was almost like a blank check that could be filled in at any time. If any party broke that covenant, what happened to that animal would happen to them. So throughout the covenant, there is, at the very beginning, this this umbrella, if you will, of death hanging over it. This notion throughout the whole thing that if you break this covenant, this is what happens to you. And the covenant will remain in effect, but if you break it, the covenant ends and you will experience what you signed up for, the death. Did the Israelites keep the covenant? No. And so from the moment they began to break it, they were under this enslavement to death. They were guilty of breaking the covenant. And this death hung over them. Now let's not be too hard on the Jewish people. Because quite frankly, I think it expands to all of humanity. None of us has kept our relationship with God. The Bible is very clear, for all have sinned. And it's also very clear that the the penalty for sin is death. We are all in that same environment. We are under death. So now look back at the passage. It says the first covenant was put in place in that way, that old way that involved death. And it says now look at the blood of the new covenant. If the blood of the old covenant was applied to the people and to the tabernacle, how much more so does the blood of Christ cleanse us from sin? How much more so are we in a new relationship with God through His blood that not only enters into this covenant, but it cleanses us from the very sin that causes us to break the covenant in the first place? It's like the criminal that goes on a spree. And he does horrible things. And he owes a debt to society. He might even owe a debt to his victims. He needs to pay. He is guilty. There is punishment and there is restitution that has to be made. And in our relationship with us and God, that's exactly the situation we're in. We have broken that relationship. And we are enslaved to death. But instead of us having to take that death, Christ entered in. And he said, I will take you to the end of that covenant. I will die in your place and free you from the effects of it once and for all. What a powerful truth that Christ has set us free from the guilt of our sin once and for all. In the Old Testament, these sacrifices that were a symbol of this ongoing problem, they had to happen over and over and over again. And no matter how many animals they sacrificed, that fence remained, that curtain remained between them and God. They were always separated. 
That's not true with Christ. Let's look at the once for all nature of Christ's sacrifice. Verses 23 through 28. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Look at the better sacrifice of Christ. He didn't come into some man-made tabernacle. He came into the very presence of God. He didn't offer some unwilling animal. He offered himself. He didn't go into some representation of God's presence. He went into the very presence of God. And he doesn't have to do it over and over and over again just to get us through a little more time. He said, I gave my life once for all. If you're here and you're struggling with sin, that is such a freeing truth. Once for all. You don't have to keep going and repeating endless, mindless repetition of of activities to try to make yourself better, to try to satisfy God. God is more satisfied through His Son, Jesus Christ, than you can ever possibly imagine or accomplish on your own. And He looks at you and He sees Christ. And He says, in Christ, you're clean once for all. In Christ, you are not guilty. You are set free from that once for all. And we get to live in that freedom and in the truth of our Lord and King Jesus who has once and for all set us free. There's one last tidbit there. Verses 27 and 28. Because if we are unclean, who gets to say what's clean and unclean? And if we are guilty, who gets to say what's right and what's wrong? And this passage points to the fact that one day each and every person will stand before Jesus Christ. And He will make that decision. He will judge whether you are clean enough for God. He will judge whether you are not guilty enough for God. He's the one. You don't get to come and say, look at all I've done. He will make that decision. Now catch this. The one who has given His life for you once for all to make you clean, And to forgive you eternally is the one that will look at you. And he will look at you and say, you are clean because I made you clean. And you are set free because I paid the price for you. And when you stand there that day, it will not be about you. It will be about Jesus Christ. And so as long as we are trying on our own to cleanse our lives and to justify ourselves, and we push Christ to the side, we are taking this incredible gift of God that was set in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament, where we're saying, no, no, I've got a much better way. When God says, you have no idea, I've done it all for you. 
Just accept it. Look, the tabernacle points to a real need in our life. And Christ truly fulfills that need. He is the gate. He is the sacrifice. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the judge. He is the new covenant. You can go through every aspect of the tabernacle and see Jesus Christ. And if I could, if you're here today, and I think we all fall into this trap, and we think, I'll just clean up my own life. I can fix myself. I can do this. I just need to buckle down. I just need to work harder. I'm going to turn over a new leaf today and tomorrow and the next day, and I will get this. If I could, thinking that you can clean up your own life is like thinking you can clean the Empire State Building with a moldy toothbrush. It's not enough. It will never be enough. And no amount of effort will ever clean it because it's not enough to overcome the problem. And even if by some stretch of the imagination you could think it would, by cleaning it with that moldy toothbrush, you're actually just making it worse in the first place. But Jesus Christ has paid it all. Once for all. Just come to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are people of great activity. And it's so hard for us to admit that we can't do something. And we see that so often in a a two and three year old and four year old toddler, but I think as adults we're just better at covering it. But we still want to say, no, I'll do it my way. And it's hard to think of a truth that comes and says, you can't do it. But to think that you sent your son to do it for us. And that we need to surrender to that. We need to give up our efforts and accept what Christ has done on our behalf. And it seems almost too easy. But the truth is, it's quite difficult to give up that control, to admit how lost we are, and to accept a gift that we could never accomplish on our own. And yet it is the greatest gift of grace ever imagined. And it is the most freeing thing possible to accept the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Father, for all gathered here today, may we see ourselves in that tabernacle. May we see our brokenness and our separatedness from you. May we see the need to have our sin atoned for and forgiven and cleansed. But then may we not stop there, but to look to Jesus Christ. And to see through his once for all sacrifice the true salvation to all who believe. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.